Hello and welcome to Are You a Weezer Fan? As always, I'm John, here with Bill. The Jason Cropper of this podcast. The show that brings you the chronological story of Weezer history, music, and lore. Bill, what are we doing today? Well, John, uh, we're starting an important part of our Weezer quest. We are going to cover the years of the Blue Album release and the following year of when the Blue Album was finally gaining traction. We, we want to take the culture of the time and see how that's going to affect Weezer as we go through the years, through the decades, what they bring in and, and what the outside world's doing that shows us where Weezer is at and how they're being perceived. It's almost a little bit of like a Weezer focused. I love the nineties, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to cover the year, like what music's doing at the time and kind of just for the fun of it, we're going to cover movies at the time and some world events too, which Maybe don't affect Weezer that much, but again, affects the culture as a whole. Uh, right. And, but yeah, we are at the end of the day, a podcast about a rock band. So we are going to be rock and roll focused. Um, and, but yeah, we're going to listen to some music today. Um, some albums that came out in the same year as Weezer's The Blue Album 94, as well as some music that came out in 95 when they were touring and promoting The Blue Album. Um, yeah, it's gonna be a lot of fun. Gonna be a lot of bullshit. Should be should be a quick, easy, fun one today. Yeah, yeah. Join us on uh, on 1994 in the world, and I guess we're gonna start with. Uh, well, I think first we need to start oh, with oh, Phil. Okay. Where were you in '94? Oh, jeez, no, we we can't do that, John. I was four years old. Mm-hmm. I was either in Colorado or Illinois, and I don't know which because I was four years old. Okay. Um, yeah, I was I was younger in in '94. I was just just a little babe. Um, so yeah, I was not aware of anything that we're going to be talking about today during the '94 '95 episode. Man, that question is going to be way more interesting in Once, like, like three hours to high school. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love it. Okay, now we can get into the world events that we don't remember happening at the time. Yeah, uh, it's a. Big ones that happened in 94. Early in 94, there was the uh, Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan ridiculousness. Yeah, and if you haven't seen the movie I, Tanya, go watch I, Tanya. It's a wonderful film uh, that covers the entire thing, I think, accurately, from what I know. I, at least, like, Hollywood movie accurately, I'd say. Right. Um, oh, I guess if there, if maybe there's people that don't know. So Tanya Harding was an ice skater who had a goon go attack a rival ice skater by breaking her legs with a crowbar. I think it was a lead pipe. Lead pipe. And I, um, and I, I lead think it was like her, her ex-husband. I think it was too. Again, uh, we were, you know, I, I was a baby for this. I don't remember. Sorry if I did, don't have the details. Yeah, just generic lead pipe to the leg so that she couldn't figure skate. And then neither of them placed first in yeah, what ne- they were it, doing. And neither of them won. Um, but yeah, and like it wasn't, it, it was like in the locker room before the event, I think. Like how does, how does this guy get this level of clearance where he can just walk into a locker room and beat the shit out of this lady like right before she skates? I mean, it wasn't like the Olympics yet, so... I don't think, I think we can go walk into an ice rink right now and get pretty far. Yeah. Okay. Weird. Somebody um, might question us if we're carrying a pipe, but. Yeah. But regardless, that happened in 94. Uh, also early in 94, there was the uh, Simpson murders and the OJ Simpson, OJ Simpson uh, white Bronco car chase. Which this, this could be. Could actually follow us through the rest of these years because this was the start of the uh, 24-7 news cycle of like court coverage. One of the most watched things in all of television was this uh, car chase, car chase, which happened live and then the following court proceedings. So like we are kind of hitting a turning point in television culture, like reality news and court coverage becomes very important to society starting right now. Okay. Yeah. That's absolutely something to keep an eye on. Interesting. I, I did not think of that. Uh, it's something personal for me. I'm a baseball guy. In 1994, there was a strike uh, by the players and there was no world series that year. So that's very sad. Poor John. Oh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I wasn't really around for it, but there, there should be a World Series. That sucks when there's not a World Series. I feel bad for the yeah, fans. Yeah, but you got the Blue Album instead. Uh, yeah, all right. That's that's a fair trade. I would trade a World Series for another 
album that is that influential to me. Fair. <laughs> then what, 94, Clinton's in office, right? Yeah, he passes uh, an assault weapons ban. For some reason, it only lasts 10 years. But, for you some know, reason. That's a good thing that happens. Um, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. It, hey, it, it happens at the time. It was good. It expired. That sucks ass. Uh, but it, it happened. That's cool. Uh, so yeah, t- a few movies come out in 1994, some big ones, uh, Lion King, one of the biggest animated films of all time. Still one of the biggest animated films of all time, which is wild. Yeah. Um, but you know, all time classic, uh, Forrest Gump, 94. That really feels like 94, you know? Yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah. Like not that it's dated or anything, but just like, if you were like 94, like, oh yeah, that, that feels like Forrest Gump. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, Pulp Fiction was 94. Yeah, um, which uh, you can maybe tie into the Weezer, just like a a more indie filmmaker Mm -hmm. coming up and exploding into awards and uh, not Grammys, that's for music. What do filmmakers get? Oscars. Oscars, getting Oscars. Don't you work in movies? Yeah, don't worry about it. All right. Uh, Kind of does set the scene for more of this, like, indie things going mainstream. Yeah. All right. Uh, Jim Carrey had a huge year in 94. I don't think anyone will ever do this again. He had three of the biggest movies of the year. Two two of them are in the top five. He he had The Mask, he had Dumb and Dumber, and he had Ace Ventura Pet Detective. All three of those were 94. Jesus. Same year. Okay. 94. Um, and then another big 94 movie that we wanted to hit on real quick was uh, Speed. Um, Speed was the launching of Keanu Reeves. Uh, he, he's, the bass player for Dogstar? Yeah, the bass player for Dogstar. That no band way. that uh, was playing at Weezer's first ever show. Yeah. Oh, the band that opened for Weezer that one time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, he had had some credits before this. Like, uh, the, you know, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure was uh, 89. Uh, but Speed in 94 was the one that really launched Keanu into, you know, yeah, massive kind of A-list fam. That is wild to even think of a Keanu that isn't massively popular, that he was still just playing in indie bands and then exploded with Speed. Yeah. Not literally, him. though, because they kept that bus over 65 miles an hour. <laughs> was it 55? <laughs> Fuck, yeah, it was, it was 55. Uh, good for you, though. Um, okay. Uh, some people were born that year. I mean, a lot of people were born that year, but, uh, That's very true. <laughs> you know, two, two big people in music that we're going to fucking mention, uh, Harry Styles, uh, originally of One Direction and Justin Bieber, pop stars. I wonder if, I wonder if those are going to cross at all later. They never did any collab with Bieber. I mean, I guess we don't know yet. We're in 94. I mean, at this point, they definitely have not collaborated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Once we get up to like 2016-ish, no, even earlier was the tie to both of their fans, right? Uh, Styles is actually kind of right now. I mean, One Direction was bigger in the uh, earlier 2010s, but Harry, Harry's having his moment Yeah, now. he really is. Um, yeah, and Justin has definitely kind of passed his. Um, but yeah, a couple of people die. Um, um, John Candy, which is kind of... A sad story because he like was getting his life together. I mean, he had gotten his life together. He like already ditched alcohol and drugs for the most part, mm-hmm. and just had a heart attack making a movie that he didn't want to make. He wanted to be hanging out with his family, but he was contractually contractually obligated to be on set. Yeah, and that sucks. He was a funny guy, good dude. Um, and then one that's actually much more important in the story. Yes, this one we're gonna take a second to get to on april 8th kurt cobain's body was found and it was uh three days earlier on april 5th he had killed himself is that correct yeah um so this is really a massive moment that i was trying to think of something that could even compare to kurt cobain dying by suicide is the it just ended the grunge movement it was like instantaneous which I couldn't eat, like I couldn't think of something equivalent. Like I don't if if Elvis had killed himself at the height of his popularity, would rock and roll have died? Like that's the level that it was at, and I can't think of anything that would be similar. Yeah, I feel like all the uh, other accidental overdoses that have happened in the history of rock and roll, like didn't have quite the impact as Kurt Cobain's very like active suicide yeah you know um 
whereas suicide by drug and alcohol is still very much a suicide. It's just not as fucking in your face, I guess. And that's a horrible way to put it. Um, yeah, but yeah, no, you're right. Like Jimi Hendrix dying didn't kill guitar music or the hippie mo- movement. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess it definitely had an impact and, on it. And a, an equivalent, which is kind of weird, might be uh, Charles Manson and the uh, Sharon Tate murders kind of ended the hippie movement as a whole, but it still wasn't their top person that it's weird. Like it's crazy how this one death just ended a whole music scene. I mean, obviously like stone temple pilots and I was going to say audio slave. No, uh, Pearl jam and stuff like they, they kept making music, but the instantaneous drop off of grunge and the instant rise of, Pop punk. Yeah, pop punk and yeah, I it it was it was a fast, it was drastic. Um it went from one day everybody was trying to be the next Nirvana to the next day nobody wanted to sound anything like Nirvana. <laughs> yeah. Um and because I mean, that would be a that that would be not good. It would be in bad taste. Right. And forward. The other thing is that Nirvana was the band that brought punky music into the mainstream of like we can sell records and the record execs starting to pick bands up. Mm-hmm. So like he kind of brought this into the mainstream and then he ended his brand of it very dramatically <laughs> with ending himself and then bringing this, all these bands that got their shot had a clear path kind of how we saw Weezer explode with Blue yeah. right away. And, and we see a couple other bands absolutely fucking explode in 1994. Yeah. We'll we'll, we'll talk about uh, Offspring, Bad Religion, uh, Green Day, just had a clear path. It, it's wild. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then, yeah, I mean, 94 was a, a huge year for pop punk. It was a big year for some guitar rock that ends up being really, really big moving forward. Uh, But also it was not a year for guitar rock, was it, Bill? Well, we're like not there at all for Nirvana came in with Nevermind in 91 and like really started this revival of guitar rock that kind of died out with hair metal getting... I guess like o- overdone. There were so many bands for every for every Guns and Roses. There was three Rats and four Cinderellas, and uh, like once that started to fade out, like all the t- chart topping things in the late eighties were just like pop songs or acoustic. Like if you were a hair metal band, you had to have an acoustic ballad if you wanted to chart. That's where we were at. Like just acoustic music, and then pop music that. Well, the, the pop music at the time got weird because Ace of Base happened. Ace of Base, man. They had three top 10 singles on the year-end chart of 94. I don't get it. I don't I just... get it one bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, like uh, Boys to Men had a huge album this year. Uh, Mariah Carey had a big old album this year. Yeah, Madonna. Like, yeah, the, the pop divas were doing really well at this time. Yeah. Madonna, Mariah, Celine. Uh, yeah, Celine Dion. Like, um, these are all top albums of the year. But on the other side, we've got some massively influential albums moving forward. Uh, one that I wanted to hit on was Beck. He puts out Mellow Gold this year. Mellow Gold is the one that has a loser on it. Okay. Yeah. Um, so a song that is since 1994, probably equal, if not as much, constant radio play as Undone the Sweater Song. True, true. Um, just just a massive, massive, massive fucking song in the kind of rock world, even though I'm not really sure Beck yeah, right? is a rock star. L- like his, He's an experimental dude. He plays guitar real well, but is he a rock star? It's it's almost the start of a alternative, like really starting to rear its head. It's not punk, it's not grunge, and it's not these pop diva songs. It's, it's starting to become alternative. Mm-hmm which really helps for our our boys in Weezer when they need to have other bands to play on the radio with. Yes. 
um, because they're not really fitting in with some of the bigger, more punk-sided things that came out this year. There was a Bad Religion album. Uh, there was a No Effects album. Which, for both Bad Religion and No Effects, I'm so happy that they got to be around for 94, because both of those bands were... Uh, I think Bad Religion started 79, which is putting out albums and albums and albums, and, you know, never had a big break, because it's punk. You don't expect to have a big break. Same yeah. thing for No Effects. Um, one of No Effects' original guitar players actually took note of when Nevermind came out and got so excited, and the rest of the band didn't understand. He was like, guys, we can yeah. live We can live off of this now. This is a big and deal. People like, are going to eat our old shit up. Like, if they're we like, just get what, what are you manager? talking about? No, I don't care. Like, whatever, that's Nirvana. We're not Nirvana. We're not going to change our sound. He's like, no. like We don't fucking have to. Punk People shit, punk want heavy happened. shit. <laughs> it's happening right now. And then that that can be best reflected with Offspring's album, who were also kicking around for a bit, but they put out yeah. Smash, which is still the highest selling independent record of all time. So they hadn't been scooped up yet. They just kept putting their stuff out. I mean, and it was put out on Epitaph. Um, yeah. And, you know, Epitaph is not a tiny label by any means at this point. No, but, but it's, at it's, that point, when Smash was put out, like, that was just a strictly indie label. Um, and, yeah, it is the highest selling indie album of all fucking time. It's, what, six, seven times platinum at this point? Six, I believe. And, yeah, just the stories from, because it's uh, one of the guys from Bad Religion runs Epitaph. I believe it's Greg Graffin. I might be wrong about that. The offshoot Hellcat is um, Armstrong, yeah. and that's an offshoot of... Uh, right. Yeah. And then just the stories uh, from Epitaph where they're just talking about how many records they have to keep ordering and ordering, and they're, they're not used to this. They don't sell millions of albums. They sell tens of thousands of albums. Yep. And their warehouse is apparently just like to the rafters with copies of Smash that they can't keep stocked. Because it just keeps flying off the shelves. I love it. And it's somewhat in part of that now to this day. Epitaph is like a legit and reputable like pop punk. Oh, yeah. Uh, indie punk, you know, kind of whatever you're looking at on the punk side of things. Absolutely. Label. And like these guys would look up at the Geffen records that Weezer's on like the biggest sellout thing that could possibly happen. <laughs> yep. Uh, last album that we wanted to hit on that came out in 94, something that we will be talking about as well today, an album that I know is uh, another favorite of ours for most of our lives, is Green Day's Dookie. Yes. Speaking of getting accused of being sellouts, Dookie was released on a major label and was everywhere. And Green Day, they had started not as long ago. It's like a bad religion or a offspring. They were like 87-ish, like really starting as young kids, right? Right, and that, I mean, that was kind of one of the uh, problems because like we, like we talked about Weezer, they did kind of show up out of nowhere and then automatically got all this exposure. Green mm -hmm. Day, however, uh, were cutting their teeth in Gilman Street constantly. Just they put out a couple records and once they finally got Trey cool into the band that just locked it up and they were like, okay, like this is the sound. This sounds great. Yep. And then, yeah, they got to record Dookie. This isn't a green day podcast, so I don't have the details <laughs> on uh, the recording of Dookie, but uh, when they signed to a record label, they were getting death threats from local punks that they used to, they were in mosh pits with just a couple weeks before they were banned from Gilman street. Uh, if you go to Gilman Street to this day, their name's still written down on a band list somewhere, but they aren't banned anymore. They actually played Gilman Street yep. uh, a couple of years ago. Yeah, I, and that's a damn shame. Like, I, I get it, but I don't know. DIY ethic and bullshit sellout culture well, is dumb sometimes. Well, it, it's pretty much done. Like, the, the mid-90s were the peak of sell out culture because nobody cares anymore but back then it was yeah, now like, everyone's just like get your money yeah you know go back for then it. it was like that was death that was the worst thing you could do was sign to a major label which is insane like yeah how dare i distribute my music if um, somebody wants to pay for it <laughs> there is a book called a sellout written by danny uh sorry dan ozzy a book called Sellout, and it follows bands that signed to major labels. And it does show that some of them, when they did so, 
labels actually did take control of their music and it kind of crashed the career. Others, like they cover Green Day, take off and they were very successful. And it just kind of does the whole range of what a major label can do to you. Okay. Well, Bill, we got to listen to some music. Yeah, let's hear some of these uh, we, songs we're talking about. We got to start with something that I know you don't want to listen to. Stop playing Ace of Bass, John. I have to play Ace of Bass, Bill. This is what we're doing this week. We're, we're listening to Ace of Bass. It's happening. John started uh, Ace of Bass. I saw the sign like four times while we were setting up. And you know, testing, actually... calibrating, getting the pod ready. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to do what you got to do, Bill. Okay. I, I want to host a good show here. Oh, fine. Um. But yeah, we're going to knock this out because this was the number one single of 1994 was uh, The Sign by Ace of Bass. And why? 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 Why was this the number one song of 1994? I don't get it. But let's check it out. I mean, and that was like the state of popular music is <laughs> weird. Like that was like techno reggae by a Swedish group, though. I, I think um, what what might be interesting to pay attention to is when we get later on in the decade to the nine, late 90s and early 2000s that all the boy bands were also coming out of Swedish producers. So there's something with American pop culture that can be easily dominated by Swedes. Okay, and so that's interesting to me because I am showing that this song did pretty well globally. But it was a number one year-end Billboard Hot 100. Yeah, it's wild. And it peaked at number two most everywhere else. (laughs) World domination, man. But like... Mariah Carey actually dominated most of the rest of the world and took the number one spot, but Ace of Base took number one in the U.S. The U.S. couldn't get enough of it. Yeah. All right. Huh. It's really weird. I, hey, man, of all the songs I've listened to, that was one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 th- there's just not much I have to say about that song. No, there's not. It, it happened... It was it was a song that was on this podcast, and yeah, on to the next man. Um, we we do an offspring or Green Day. Your, uh, your yeah, call. I was gonna say we're gonna do either some happier pop punk or some darker pop punk. Let's do uh let's do offspring because I do think Smash retains a bit more of the angstiness that was in the early nineties, like grunge culture. Not that Offspring was ever grunge, but it still shows that there was this like melodramatic angsty sadness that was still in what was about to be this pop punk explosion. Okay. Uh, so yeah, what do we got today? What, what, what are you calling? We are doing self-esteem off of smash by the offspring. I know I'm getting ahead of the show a little bit, but I think some of the lyricism here was influential to our next album, Pinkerton. Yeah, like, again, it has the, the that angstiness. Like, it is just a yeah. song about a girl, but even just the, like, tone of it has that, like, sadness to it that you don't see in... I mean, I don't think there's too much to talk about, so we can kind of skip it. Like, that you don't see on the Green Day album, Dookie. Yeah, Dookie, it, it, and it's just kind of, it, like, it, it's got some heaviness to it, but it doesn't really have any, like, angsty, kind of, like, raw emotion yeah, really there, much. There, there's, like, a sorrow that Offspring kept with them, which is what I think mm-hmm. maybe made it an easier stepping stone for the public to go from a Pearl Jam album to a punkier album. Yeah. Where at this point, a lot of people were definitely off-put by uh, Billy Joe Armstrong's stage presence, lyricism, <laughs> tongue-in-cheekiness, uh, kind of about the entire band. 
um, and, and what they what they were doing at the time. Right. Um, well, some people were, but it, they did not stop the album from being a huge. No, fucking no, hit. no. And I think they had the. Yeah, yeah. We're just skipping back over to Dookie, but they they had the commercial appeal to the mainstream audience. They didn't lose all of their fans when they signed to a major label. And then just the whole culture shifting kind of eased people into this punk explosion of uh, Offspring and Dookie. Yeah. Um, so, holy shit. I mean, I think before we get into Green Day, it, it cannot be understated that the Offspring's 1994 album Smash is the greatest selling indie album of all time and what the fuck that yep. is mind-blowing to me it's right place right time which yeah. is what most music is and that's that's what the 90s were was this shift from hair metal and acoustic rock to punk being mainstream yeah okay well you know speaking of punk being mainstream let's uh for the first of many times on this show moving forward, let's listen to one of the mainstays of punk and pop punk for the next like quarter century, starting with a uh, she off of Green Day's Dookie. Man, like, even though 94 was a huge year for Ace of Bass and Mariah Carey and Boys <laughs> to Men and all this not guitar rock music, uh, fucking middle schoolers and high schoolers that wanted to learn how to play guitar had the Blue Album and Dookie and Smash to listen to. They they were all right. I don't know. I think you got to know how to finger pick to play Blue Album songs. <laughs> I, I mean, some parts of them, yeah. You only need but, a power chord for uh, Dookie. Holy shit. That was a fun track. It's so good. I love that song so much. Like, it's it's a deeper cut, but I feel like it's one of the more popular deeper cuts. She just, oh, it's such a good song. Yeah. Um, I mean, and this one does make it on to international super hits. Um, Green really? Day. Yeah, Green Day, like a band that we'll talk about later in this episode, uh, had not just the balls, but actually enough good material to back it up and like make a greatest hits album. It, like just mid career, mid career. Like they put out a greatest hits album and then put out another album, like within a year of that. Um, <laughs> Cause they're just like, yeah, fuck you. Like, well, and I mean like the momentum that green day had like that, that sold 8 million copies Uh basket. I believe basket case was nominated for a Grammy. Like they had nothing off blue was nominated for a Grammy. No, it got a lot of video awards. Uh, yes. But I don't think now I did not get any Grammy nominations to my knowledge. Yeah, which is crazy. Green Day, like getting this recognition out of the gate. And again, I don't think I, I don't think Offspring was nominated for anything, but that's because you need major labels to back you in these things. Right. Because, I mean, stuff like that, once you get to award season, it's just as much politics as well as, you know, your music and. Right, and Greg Graffin at Epitaph's not going to take the time to go canvas for his albums to get awards. He's just trying to stay afloat. I mean, nor is he going to have the credentials to get into the correct rooms to do the type of lobbying that you would actually fucking need to win a Grammy, you know? Yeah, but um, I'd, I'd like to see Dexter Holland try to go walking around and do a black tie event, though, with his spiky hair. I'm sorry, do you mean Dexter Holland, PhD? Yes, he was. I don't, he didn't have his PhD yet. You're right. All I right. Sorry. He, I think he had, Get, getting ahead of us. I think he had dreadlocks still. Uh, for fuck's sake. All right. Um. So yeah, that that was '94. Um. Anything you want to hit on before we move to next year? Um. I think we we start to see it really quickly, and I hope we got it across of this turning point that these years are in popular music, and I think, I think we're about to see. It even more in 1995, which I think we can just roll into. Yeah, because uh, 95 absolutely continues the conversation of like how Weezer is able to sustain the career that they are able to sustain. Um, so I, I guess first we'll check in. Um, has anything changed for you since you were like a four-year-old <laughs> last year? Uh, well, I can confidently say that I loved the Power Rangers, which premiered in 93. 
I don't think I'm quite aware of Mortal Kombat, the video game franchise yet, which came out in 92, but okay, it is yeah. very close to becoming one of my favorite things in 1995. We're almost there. Okay. Yeah. Uh, by the end of 95, I would like to think that I am uh, walking. Um, <laughs> also, hopefully talking to some degree. Uh, so with that being said, let's hop into 95. Uh, so yeah, 1995, Bill, um, things happen. As they do. We found nothing but tragedy for 95. 1995 was a rough fucking year. Except for one one turning point in culture. Uh, Let's knock out the sadness. Um, The World Trade Organization is established. It's not great. It it could be better, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You're just going to make me list the sadness so you can read the happy one? Oh, fine. Uh, Timothy McVeigh blew up a building in Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City bombing, which another largest domestic terrorist attack. Um, I think largest attack in general before, uh, besides 9-11. Yeah. Um, and then O.J. Simpson, uh, who last year, I mean, we all pretty much know that he <laughs> murdered his ex-wife. Not and guilty, the boyfriend John. was found not guilty. Um, wild. Yeah, not guilty. So I guess uh, allegedly, O.J. allegedly. He was acquitted on those charges somehow. Well, what good happened, John? Thank you. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> I'll give it to you. Uh, the X Games. We have, we have the very first X Games in 1995. Yeah, this this one is important to... It, it's really funny how closely Weezer is tied to the punk scene and the rise of punk because they're not a punk band. Mm-hmm. But this starts the extreme culture of the 90s. It really does. Yeah, um, and, like, the explosion of punk and pop punk and everything that's been yeah. happening over the last couple of years in music definitely helped mm-hmm. birth the X Games like, as something that would, you know, be well-received in popular culture. Skateboarding came along with punk. And in turn the X games and, you know, somewhat extreme sports on television and in film and, you know, skateboard movies and everything like that boosted punk and punk adjacent music. Um, so they, they, it was kind of a symbiotic relationship throughout the nineties. Yeah. The, the, the synergy in everything for, for, uh, punk that just trickled down into culture is wild. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the X Games happened. It was fun. 1995, first one. Uh, there were movies in 1995. Um, a lot of good movies in 95. Yeah, some fun ones. Uh, Apollo 13 happened. Uh, Jumanji happened. Uh, one of my all-time personal favorites, uh, Tu Wong Fu. All the best. Love Julie Newmar. Oh, so good. Um, if, if you haven't seen it, check it out. It is a movie in which Patrick Swayze, John Leguizamo, and Wesley Snipes uh, spend like 90 minutes in drag uh, changing minds and hearts in a small town. Uh, it's, 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 it's a delightful fucking comedy. Um, yeah. One of my favorites. 95. Yeah. Uh, toy story happens, which is the first CG or yeah. Com- computer generated animated feature film, which that goes on to change movies forever too. I mean, coming hot off the heels of the Lion King. This is a couple of good years for animated films. Right. And then one of my favorites of all time, Mortal Kombat movie hits. Again, like I said, I, I was still just like just before knowing that I loved Mortal Kombat because I, I was not aware of Mortal Kombat when this movie came out. Okay. Um, and then one that we definitely wanted to hit on, um, Mallrats comes out. Yeah. So continuing what uh, I was talking about with Tarantino, the indie directors were really having their year in the 90s. And Mallrats, directed by Kevin Smith, features a Weezer song prominently in the credits. Yeah, uh, Suzanne uh, never made it to the Blue Album, but was recorded at the Electric Lady Sessions uh, for the Blue Album. Which, uh, it was one of their most played songs that wasn't an album song. I believe it still is to this day, but it definitely was uh, during the time of Blue and Pinkerton. It's such a good song. It they've be. actually been playing it a lot on their current tour, um, the Indie Rock Road Trip. I know. Um, hopefully we get to see it. We're, we're going to that soon, yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, movies. Uh, uh, people were born 
Um, in the music realm, we got a few uh, pop stars uh, coming up this year. Uh, Denzel Curry, Post Malone, Megan Thee Stallion. Oh, Denzel's Curry Taboo album. If you have not heard that, you should definitely check that out. I have not, but I will give it a listen. Okay. Um, you, I mean, you know that that's a little bit of a blind spot for me <laughs> musically. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get into it a little more. But yeah, and Megan and Sweet Posty. Okay. Um, and then people also die in '95. Um, <laughs> actor Dean Martin. Uh, he goes. Uh, Ginger Rogers. Actor Dean Martin. Singer. Actor. Dancer. Extraordinaire. Ratback. You know. Alcoholic. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, fuck you. Dean Martin goes. Ginger Rogers goes. Um, Um, Who is Ginger Rogers and why is this important? uh, Ginger Rogers was the original lyric for Weezer song Buddy Holly. Um, if, right. yeah. So if you remember the original lyrics were, uh, you look just like Ginger Rogers and I move just like Fred Astaire. Doesn't, doesn't hit man. Um, no, no. Yeah. I'm glad we're glad we changed that one, but Ginger Rogers, she passes in 1995. So that's worth mentioning. Um, and we mentioned it last year because it happened last year. Um, but it's 1995. Kurt Cobain's death is still affecting music. Yeah. And it leads to something fucking huge that starts in 1995. You you teased that off air. How did I not know what you were going to do with that? Yeah. Um, As what really started as a solo exercise in catharsis over the death of a good friend, uh, former drummer of Nirvana, Dave Grohl, writes, records, and produces an album entirely on his own titled Foo Fighters. Yes. Um, that album is a big deal. It is for our purposes of tracking rock bands in the 20th century and 21st century. Yeah, it did not immediately pop off in 95 because, again, he kind of put this out like not really as the thing expecting to be a thing but you know he did make a hundred cassettes and somewhat distribute them well Um, yeah because he recorded it in october of 94 so april to october month maths uh four months after kurt died mm -hmm. and then didn't really want to put it out at all right he really did just do it as a project for himself Yes, um, and he did end up, you know, making a few cassettes and distributing them. I think a hundred was the number that he made. Um, but you know, as they do, they make it around. They make it to some radio stations. Obviously, people do figure out that it is still at you know, quote unquote, the guy from Nirvana. I mean, that's a big sell. There's three guys in Nirvana. One of right. them's dead. One is still producing music. I'm interested, and and that's why he didn't put his name on it because he didn't want it to be that. Um, but also he was never going to be able to fully escape that. Yeah. Um, it's, it's impossible. Um, so yeah, Foo Fighters, uh, self-titled debut album comes out this year. Uh, of note for that Foo Fighters is like, you know, one of the biggest rock bands currently in 2023 in 1995, they were not a rock band. It was Dave Grohl doing everything. <laughs> he had not recruited anybody yet. Uh, but more albums come out this year, and it is still uh, not a huge year for guitar rock in the charts. Um, I mean, we're still starting to get there. Like, the the kind of punk explosion gets uh, no doubt into the mainstream a bit. Uh, this is this is right where we're starting to see a third wave ska really blow up. Well, we're not there yet because punk has to run its course, and then mm-hmm. we have to run punk with horns which uh, we'll cover in some later years. But yeah, like No Doubt's popping up. We still have our standard, like pop music is still pop music. Right. Um, And at this point in time, uh, I mean, TLC puts out an album. Uh, Coolio is the number one song of the year with Gangsta's Paradise. Uh, R. Kelly is massive in 1995. Oh, man. I I, I just did a deep dive into the crimes of R. Kelly. And it is. Yeah, you shouldn't have done that. It's so much worse than you think it is. Yeah, it's it's so much worse. I knew it was bad, but Christ. Yeah. Um, I think Alanis yeah. Morissette uh, popping up is kind of interesting 
Like, I think that is kind of that alternative vibes we were talking. It's taking that acoustic rock that was popular and making it edgier. Like, it, Mm -hmm. again, bringing, like, taking that grunge feeling and bringing it forward to new music. Yes. Um, Yeah. I I mean, and you do see, like, a similar sort of deal. Um, I mean, so the Smashing Pumpkins put out a really long, really weird, <laughs> really massive, really epic album this year um, that is pushing like weird into the mainstream a little bit uh, just because it kind of it's it's got this little bit of heaviness, little bit of edginess to it. And it seems like that is what's selling right now. Um, and we're experimenting with exactly what's going to be the formula uh, yeah. But if, if you've got a little bit of an edginess and a good guitar tone, you're getting some listeners right now yeah. in 1995. Absolutely, I think I think experimental is is what was happening in the 90s. Um, and also, definitely of note, 95 was a year. Um, I mean, which which wave of British invasion is this? Is this 2.0, 3.0 at this point? I think it's three, because I think two might have happened in the 80s, and what, ones, Stones and Beatles. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but yeah, you, we start getting these uh, these albums from Oasis and Blur in particular yeah, uh, in 95. Yeah, we're kind of at the start of it here. It's, it's not taking over our charts quite yet, but that is... We're getting really close to, like we've been saying, guitar rock becoming the main popular music. And and we were speaking about this off camera a little bit as well. Um, and we'll get back to this in much later episodes. But this wave of kind of the British indie pop rock alternative shit that's happening uh, leads to a wave years later that is influential in bringing Weezer back into the fold. Um, yeah, it's it's very interesting. Like, it's very interesting. Yeah. Weezer rides this punk wave to start, and spoilers for up ahead, but after the next album, they kind of disappear, and they manage to pop back up at, again, just the right time to catch a wave of, uh, of sound that works for them. All right. Well, Bill, should we listen to some '95 music? Yeah, let's see. Let's see what was going on here. Uh, all right, let's let's start it off with pop hit Coolio's "Gangsta's Paradise." As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I take a look at my life and realize there's nothing left. Cause I've been blasting and laughing so long that even my mama thinks that my mind is gone. But I ain't never crossed a man that didn't deserve it. Be treated like a punk, you know that's unheard of. You better watch how you're talking and where you're walking. Are All right, that song's so good, man. <laughs> it's so fucking good. It's nice and spooky. Yeah, uh, the background, um, kind of like you know the choir gospel kind of stuff. Um, fucking excellent. Yeah, uh, what was this quote that I found? Uh, Entertainment Weekly. This may be the bleakest tune ever to top the pop singles chart. Maybe. I yeah, lyrically it's pretty fucking dark. Um also like it it's interesting to me that that song is not at all explicit. Oh, that's interesting. It's a parental advisory album, but that as a number one song not at all explicit. Um it really just had everything going for it to be the number one song of 1995. Right, like you know, uh, I think it it took a while for I, yeah, I think music listeners, families, like at, at this point in hip hop, um, I think it's you know kind of much more accepted that you can top the charts while being much more explicit lyrically. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we're like what seven or eight years off of NWA, and that being the only touchstone point. Like, hip-hop is definitely becoming a mainstay in music. Yes. Um, like, it's no longer just going to be a fad. Vanilla Ice and Criss Cross have had their time where it did seem like it was just going to be uh, fads full of novelty songs. Yep. And, yeah, that's kind of what this song shows, too, that it can be have so much emotion to it because yeah it can have pop sensibilities but also really fucking hit and really have a good sound to it at the same time that's that's a great fucking song yeah and this this rise of uh 
rock and roll is going to pop back up again, but hip hop's going to be the main form of pop music pretty much going forward. Yeah, it it really is from I mean that's that's going to be yeah. most of this <laughs> show probably. Um like if we're going to listen to a number one song from every year moving forward, which we seems like we're going to be doing, um it's likely going to be a hip hop song until Taylor Swift gets to be where Taylor Swift is at. Mm. Um, I'm curious. We're yeah. dozens of episodes away from Right, we are. And, and Bill, this is a rock and roll podcast. Uh, let's listen to some rock and roll. You want to hear some Foo Fighters? You want to hear some Smashing Pumpkins? But these are two of my favorite rock albums in 95. <sighs> I don't want to hear either of them, if we're being honest. Uh, let's start with Smashing Pumpkins, and we'll end on a better note with Foo. God, I hate you a lot. I but uh, here's Zero by the Smashing Pumpkins. What did that band ever do to you? That was fucking great, Bill. That just made me realize so much. I hated all of that, and I can't stand Billy Corgan's voice. But do you know what is about to happen? New metal is coming because that—that's that's what that is. That is proto new metal. Limp Bizkit is already a band in '95. So is Corn. Yeah, Rage Against the Machine, Red Hot Chili Peppers, and Primus are sprinkling the seeds, and new metal is about to rise. But you can't blame <laughs> Smashing Pumpkins for that. They're good. Not not when you do a heavy riff that's only one bar long over and over. That is like the basis of new metal. And this is the, like those bands are listening to this. Like Linkin Park loves Smashing Pumpkins. I know this. It's coming. And Yep, it is. <laughs> and it'll come up. I, I love that song. I love that album. I love Smashing Pumpkins. And that's um, okay. You're allowed to do that. And I'm allowed to hate it. <laughs> and for some reason, you also hate this next band. And this one, I really don't get. So I don't hate Foo Fighters after this album. I don't like them, but I don't hate the Foo Fighters. And I love Dave Grohl as a person. It's impossible not to. It is impossible. Um, he but, is the greatest person. Um, The, the first album really, I, I don't think Dave found the sound of the Foo Fighters yet. No, I don't think so at all because I don't think he was trying to. I mean, as we had hit on, it was more of an exercise in catharsis. These were some songs that he had written uh, like during their Nirvana phase. This was some stuff that he had come up with after the death of Kurt, uh, from what I understand. But like, it, it, it's a little bit of a mess. He hadn't totally found the sound. He did it all himself. He did not have a band yet. <laughs> well, he doesn't need a band. He well, really let's... Let's listen to a song off of it, and maybe I think I can put into words why I feel differently about this first album. Okay, so yeah, let's just do track one, introduction to the Foo Fighters, welcome Dave Grohl to a solo career. Let's go. Uh, this is a call. Man duty, <laughs> like that was fucking excellent. Okay, I'm I'm gonna take back that he didn't that he was trying to find the Foo Fighter sound because that's the Foo Fighter sound. It really is. I don't think the whole album has the same sound though. I mean, it, it right. I mean, that one is a definitely Foo Fighter. That's song. a Foo Fighter song. One song that you and I definitely enjoy uh watershed the super punky one like watershed that's a sound that the foo fighters can get to and have gotten to on a lot of their albums um but holy shit bill that is that and really with that song being track one on the debut album that is the birth of uh i mean the biggest american rock band in 2023 i think without a doubt it's the birth of the foo um yeah a goddamn foo. That was a great song. Yeah, we listened to some good ones today. Yeah, I'm interested to, because uh, I, I know we're going to be following them this whole podcast. I'm interested to see the Foo Fighters uh, evolution alongside Weezers. 
Yeah, um, it, it's going to be fun to see trajectories that align. I mean, you know, because Green Day started a little bit earlier, but this is their first major release. So we're going to be following them kind of hand in hand for a lot of this. The Foo Fighters are going to be following hand in hand for the entirety of this. Um, I think we need to pay. I, we don't want to. Audience, we don't want to. But I think we need to pay attention to Red Hot Chili Peppers. We do. I mean, because we need to pay attention to bands that are going to be up and down a little bit and bands that are going to fall off. Um, I mean, so what? Just before we get out of here, Red Hot Chili Peppers, where are they at? Because we have not mentioned (laughs) them yet in this episode and we should have. So, you know, I might edit this in. I might leave it right at the fucking end. Well, they're also the Red Hot Chili Peppers start the seeds for new metal. Them, Primus, funk metal is the predecessor to rap metal. And it starts in the late 80s. Red Hot Chili Peppers uh, released shit in 1984. Yes. They've got some, uh, then, then they've got an album called Freaky Styly in 1985. My yes. God, Chili Peppers were around a long time. Yeah, and they're, the funk metal starts planting these seeds. Okay. Uh, okay, and then, yeah, Blood Sugar Sex Magic in 91, the same year as Nevermind. Um that huge um yeah that's a massive one for them and huh. the, the maybe it's because their fan base seems to be different that they're not in a competing thing with foo and green i mean they played the same oh no they played a different woodstock than green day did green day played 95 chili peppers did 99 mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that is correct so maybe that is it maybe they're just not in the same competing rock they are a rock band, but a different type of rock band. Yeah. Huh. All right. So uh, uh, what we're getting to is this episode is going to be a fun one for us to make moving forward. Um, just checking out what else is happening in music in the world. Um, kind of around a Weezer cycle. Yeah. 94, 95. <laughs> this has been it's very fucking interesting. The world during the Blue Album. Well, Bill, there's just one more thing to do. Uh, what's that, John? You always a fan? Uh, join us next time we will be hitting the road with Weezer uh, tour cycle for the Blue Album promotion we're going to do uh, some stops on TV shows we're going to be doing I think over 200 shows so join us next time well over 200 shows we will be covering on the next episode of are you a weezer fan <laughs>